Hi, welcome to the CFO Squared podcast, chats about financial and financing optimization. I'm Carl Baker. This podcast is all about business funding, success, and strategy. We're here to help you know how to finance your business. We will also talk about other financial issues impacting your business and ideas to help you succeed and advance your cause. Now let's get into the next episode. everybody. Carl Baker here again um, with another episode of CFO Squared Chats about Financial and Financing Optimization. It has been a while since I recorded an episode, just been busy in the past month. I'm recording in early December, so uh, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Um, Just been busy over the past month, plus had a little bit of uh, under the weather and working on the business, working on some real estate transactions. So just uh, doing what I can to keep busy. And uh, But I did want to get back into another episode. And today I want to talk, uh, over the next couple of episodes at least, I'm going to talk about real estate. And the first episode is going to be a little more a little bit more broad, um, just encouraging people if you're thinking about um, some commercial real estate investing, I want to give a few tidbits. And then um, in another episode, we're going to talk about how a uh, potential real estate investor would get started from my point of view. And there are lots of podcasts out there um, from many more people that are well-known more than I am, but uh, still wanting to give some of my thoughts about that. Um, So let's talk about commercial real estate investing. Um, And again, I'm really talking to somebody that's just trying to figure this out. And maybe you have this as an idea um, and you're trying to figure out whether to move forward with it or not. And so um, want to just give a few thoughts. Um, So keep in mind that the advantage of real estate investing is the passive nature of the income. So uh, we talk in terms in advancing a person's career, we talk in terms of having multiple streams of income. And uh, this is one avenue by which you'll have tangible property that from which you will earn money passively. That's That's the goal, earning money while you sleep. Um, there are many schools of thought. Second point I want to make is there are many schools of thought and perhaps some myths about debt. Uh, debt is a good way to leverage your investments. If you're thinking about, for example, think about it this way. If you're thinking about buying a $500,000 property, if you are using your own money, you need $500,000. And then that will be $500,000 that you can't use elsewhere. Um, And so you may think that's the best way to do it. And if so, go for it. Um, But we talk in terms of, again, leverage. If you're buying a $500,000 property with debt, you probably only need about $100,000. If you have $500,000, then at the end of this transaction, you'll have $400,000 to do other things. So you can just get more done 
and invest more when you are using other people's money to help um, purchase real estate. There are many tax advantages as well. When you make a down payment, which is your only cash investment, you get to deduct the full cost of the asset via depreciation. Um, actually, I'm going to say it. A, I'm going to say it a different way. When you're using debt to purchase a property and you make a down payment, that down payment is your only cash out of pocket. Uh, so in that example, you have a hundred thousand dollars out of your pocket to purchase a $500,000 property, but you get to deduct the full cost of the asset via depreciation while the lender forks over the cash for much of the acquisition. So somebody else is buying the property for you essentially, and they're spending their $400,000. You're spending your $100,000, but you get to deduct over the course of time, you get to deduct the full cost, even though most of the money hasn't come out of your pocket. So that's a huge advantage. Uh, in fact, the biggest advantage when we talk about uh, real estate investment in terms of taxes and uh, overall return. Your invest number, number two, your rate of investment, your, excuse me, your rate of return for that investment is really based on that down payment, not the total purchase price. So when you're talking about your investment rate of return, you're going to have a return based on the full cost of the asset, but your only cash out of pocket is the down payment. So um, that your rate of return is based on that down payment uh, amount only. You may want to look at the full rate of return as well for the full acquisition, but your true rate of return is important to understand. Thirdly, while the lender has forked over the money to help you acquire the asset, you get to deduct the cost of the financing that you pay to take advantage of the bank's purchase. So that's another huge advantage. The interest expense is a deduction uh, that the cost of that money is a uh, is a deduction for you uh, for helping you advance your cause by uh, securing that asset. So that's important to understand. And finally, it's really important. And and obviously, interest rates. I was going to say interest rates are really low as well. So um, you know, again, now just seems to be a good time. And there's lots of discussion in the market right now about whether interest rates are going to rise and uh, lots of schools of thought on that, but it does seem like right now, and at least for the, the next several months, probably a year um, interest rates are going to remain lower and um, taking advantage of that cost of capital is a very important thing. The other thing I've heard of before, and I just want to say it in this, um, in this uh, broadcast, many people, they form their basis and their experience for purchasing real estate based on what they know early in their lives, i.e. purchasing a home. And so you tend to look at the deal based on that address and um, based on the square footage and based on how many bathrooms there are, how many bedrooms, et cetera. Remember, when you're buying real estate, you're not buying an address, you're buying cash flow. So the whole thing about purchasing real estate is to understand 
the return that you're getting for that uh, investment. It's, it's a true investment where you're seeking to obtain cash flows to pay uh, the cost of maintaining the property to main, to, um, and, to, and to have a return on the property for your own uh, livelihood. So those are just a few introductory comments that I wanted to make. As we uh, segue into another component of this of this um, episode, I wanted to just again just to talk about the types of real estate, the types of financings, and um, and just give you some heads up and some some thoughts about the ways that people begin investing in real estate. There are there are many avenues by which you can begin this process. You could begin, many people begin by investing in single family homes, one or two homes, buy a couple a year, whatever, um, such that they're ramping up a portfolio. The other component is multifamily homes, uh, apartment complexes, and there are many schools of thoughts on that, schools of thought on that. And, um, you know, again, that's, that is uh, something that we could talk about in, a, in great length at another at another time, some people like to in in either of those cases they like to buy those homes for purposes of having a long term rental uh, portfolio where they are hoping to gain a return from the cash flows from the rents as well as from future gains future gains on the sale of the property. Some people though tend to buy undervalued properties which need uh, a lot of work and they'll do what we call a fix and flip. They will buy a single family home, uh, other comparable homes in the market, maybe $200,000. For example, this home is not able to sell or command $200,000 because it's been run down. So I don't know, maybe it's a hundred thousand dollars. And some people, again, if you're buying an address to live in, you may look at that and, um, downplay that. But when you're looking at it as an investment, the low valuation, the high need for improvements, people uh, that are professional investors will see that as an opportunity to make money. So they may obtain a fix and flip loan, a bridge loan, by which they will um, um, seek financing to purchase the property and to uh, do the repairs necessary through that financing in order to uh, bring that property back up to market um, presentation and then sell the home for a profit over the course of whatever, four, five, six months, year, however long, depending on the nature of the repairs. They also may take that home and convert it to a long-term mortgage and a long-term rental. So that's another that's another uh, avenue. Then there are other types of properties. There are commercial properties, office buildings, strip malls. Um, uh, there are mixed-use buildings that have a component of residential and um, and and commercial use. Um, think of a apartment in a a, a, a a multi-rise building that has retail space on the first floor at the street level with residences, apartment residences above. That's an example of a, 
mixed use. Of course, there is um, agricultural and farm real estate, for example. There are, of course, hotels, other retail spaces. And uh, there are different types of financing for all of those things. Many times a, a borrower or a buyer or investor may not be able to obtain a, a long-term mortgage for some of these properties, and uh, they may need to obtain a bridge loan. And there are many purposes for a uh, for needing a bridge loan. A bridge loan tends to be short, short-term debt in nature. And the purpose of that is really just to help an organiz- uh, help, help a borrower, help an investor buy that property and secure that property with the, with the hopes of eventually having a long-term mortgage, but it helps to get the transaction done and um, move forward in um, whatever needs to be done for the property. And sometimes there are, is a need to improve their own borrowing position. And so that's another reason for a bridge loan. So that's just a, a, a quick summary of bridge lending. And um, again, that's another subject where we could talk in more depth at some point. How do lenders, moving into the to another subject, um, how do lenders decide um, whether to whether a deal is there or not in their in their vernacular? Is there a deal there? Um, and I've talked in past episodes about the four C's and every banker, every lender has a different way they describe the four C's. Sometimes there are seven, sometimes there are five, but my way of explaining it is the four C's, credit, cash flow, collateral, and the capacity of borrower, which encompasses several things. Um, and so first of all, a lender is going to understand the borrower's um, situation. What is their credit? What is the collateral that's being offered? What what is the building being purchased or constructed? What is what is uh, and is there enough room there for a uh, for a loan to be made against that? In other words, most lenders don't lend up to a hundred percent of uh, the value of a property for many reasons, which we'll we'll talk about, but. Um, collateral is, is one piece of it. Then lenders tend to want to understand the economics of the use of the building. What is the cash flow? Um, in other words, what is the, the total rents minus all the expenses? And um, is, there, is the rent producing the net rents, the, the, the net profits of the, of the real estate asset is the cash flows generating enough profits to pay for the debt service. And um, we talk in terms of debt service coverage ratio, which is a ratio calculated by taking essentially net profits, the total cash flows, revenues minus all expenses. And that number divided by the debt service, the principal and interest payment. Um, and so the top number, the, the funds available for debt service number does not include interest. It's, it's revenues minus, uh, non debt service expenses, taxes, um, 
operating expenses, insurance, and repairs, et cetera. Those net expenses divided by debt service tends to need to be 1.0 or above. Banks, many banks and even many lenders will need that number to be higher, say 1.25 and above. But there are lenders out there that will essentially lend against a 1.0 or above. So that's a comment about cash flows. And then capacity of borrower is the fourth C. And that's really just an all-encompassing all-encompassing factor that includes things like what's the experience of this buyer? How many other properties? Is this their first? Is there is this their hundredth acquisition? Um, what's the cash? What's the um, cash reserves of the borrower? What is what is the down payment being offered? Those those sort of things. So that's that's a summary of cash flows. But besides that, other things that lend, lenders will look at will obviously include risk of default. Um, and the four C's are the way that lenders are evaluating that. They are, um, they're going to want to essentially evaluate what is that risk of default. They also want to know several other things. Where is it? Where is the building? The lenders um, on a local market, on a local basis, understand the market very well for purposes of understanding risk. Lenders on a national basis, there are many lenders, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this in a little bit here, but lenders on a national basis, they study the market across zip codes, across states, across counties, et cetera, and they have their views on um, the risk of default based on geography. Many lenders, for example, will will take a dim view of rural real estate compared to urban real estate because in the rural um, environment, there's just not as much going on. And so um, managing the cash, managing the cash flow, managing that situation is different than in a well-populated area, just as an example. Uh, there's exceptions to everything, uh, so don't take from that. No lending is done in rural capacity in rural areas. That's not what I mean. It's just that's just an example about how lenders are looking at where a geographic where where the the real estate asset is is located geographically. Economy is another factor. What is what's going on in the economy? Uh, for example, many lenders right now. In December of 2021, and for the past several months, year plus, many lenders are really taking a hard look at hotels um, and saying, because of the economy, because there's not a lot of travel going on right now in 2021, uh, hotels are a type of real estate by which, for which we have a hard time taking the risk in issuing funds for financings for what, whether it's construction or acquisition or whatever. I'm not saying there's no hotel financing being done. Obviously, that's not true, but many lenders are um, putting hotels on the prohibited industry list right now because of the economy. Um, other things are include risk of market downturn, risk of and risk of devaluation. That's another reason why lenders tend to not loan at 100% of value. Uh, if a property is worth $500,000, 
they don't want to put the full amount out. They, they need the borrower to have some skin in the game. But also, if they do have a default situation, heaven forbid, um, but it does happen, they want to be able to sell that property and knowing that that property usually it becomes known that that's a distressed situation. And so the property needs to be sold at less than regular market value. And uh, a lender's ultimate goal in that situation is just to get the money back. And so with a loan being given at less than full appraisal value at the beginning of the loan, they have some wiggle room there for selling that asset. That's just one, one reason for that lower loan to value. Um, and, uh, so just understanding those risks of market downturns and devaluation are important. Next thing is type of property. Uh, again, they want to understand, and I've talked about hotels, but they want to understand what is this? Is this an apartment complex? Is this a single family home being, um, purchased for long-term rentals? Is it a fix and flip? Is it a mixed use? Is it a gym is it a gas station? Is it a hotel? Uh, what is the type of property? An office building, strip mall, whatever. And uh, again, they're all going to be uh, looked at differently and the risks are there. And if the lender is prepared to lend on a particular type of property, they're probably going to price one versus the other differently. So for example, they are going to lend on a single family home based on the risks um, baked into their knowledge of how single family homes generate cash and differently than they will a gas station, for example. Gas station is going to be viewed more risky. There are environmental issues, et cetera. And so the financing costs and the financing terms for a single family home investment property is going to be different than the financing terms for a gas station. Um, and um, professional lenders understand how to evaluate that and how to price that into their financing. Finally, um, just understanding what is the borrowing ask? Is, uh, is this is the borrower seeking a 30-year term loan? Are they seeking just an 18-month bridge loan? And, uh, and understanding how the, those two scenarios impact the pricing of the financing and the appetite for actually saying yes to a deal. I'm going to end this segment with um, moving to one, one final segment, which is I'm going to just talk for a few minutes about when to go to a bank versus when to go to a non-bank lender. Cause I do get those questions a lot. You know, I'm a commercial loan broker where I am advocating for clients and helping them find the right financings. And basically I help people find money by expanding the world of financing beyond the local bank when necessary or when it's best for a client. And so there are times when it's, uh, very appropriate. Many times it's very appropriate to go to a bank versus a non-bank lender. And I would just say the flip is also true. There are many times when it's appropriate to go to a non-bank lender and understanding those scenarios um, comes from experience. It comes from many of the things that we talked about earlier in the show. 
Um, but it's important to understand that across America, the overall average bank decline ratios, depending on the, the financial institution and the size of the institution, but it's somewhere around 75%. For, for larger banks, the, the number is probably a little higher, probably closer to 80%. For smaller banks, it's a little lower. It's maybe closer to 70%. And credit unions, et cetera, and local banks tend to have a little higher acceptance ratio. And there are many reasons for it. From my experience, the reasons have nothing to do with the banks. So I want to be clear that I'm not disparaging banks. There are many people that have great ideas for for needing financings, whether it's real estate or other reasons, but they're just not prepared to qualify for lending. Um, credit scores are not where they need to be. And we can talk about what that definition would need to be, but you know, somebody with a 500, 500 credit score is going to have a very difficult time no matter where they go. But many of those, many of many people with 500 credit scores are going to banks looking for Financings and that that drives the decline ratios to a, a, a higher number, and that's oftentimes the case. Um, credit ratios or cash reserves, that capacity of borrower experience. You know, a lender is not going to borrow to or loan money to somebody that has no experience in in many cases uh, if there are not other compelling reasons. So that's just an introductory comment about um, the the high decline ratios across America. And there are many, many non-bank lenders out there that are trying to fill that void and reduce those decline ratios and and fill a fill a place in the market. But many people first, when when they are seeking financing, they go to banks. And it's really, I think it's because it's what we know. They're on every corner, lots of sh- storefront um, frontage. Um, We're taught to go to banks from very early ages. When you buy a car at 16, you go to a bank. And again, that's all quite normal and quite appropriate. And um, it's just important to understand, though, there are other options that are out there. If a bank happens to decline a financing situation, it doesn't mean that your search is done and that you won't be able to advance your costs. Um, just another comment about, about banks, the, the reason why it's very appropriate to go to banks is it's common knowledge. They do tend to offer very competitive short-term commercial financing with long-term amortization. Um, they, Banks don't tend to do 30-year fixed rate loans that allow a borrower to lock their cost of money in for 30 years. And that's because banks, when they're obtaining their funds, they aren't able to obtain 30-year money. So they're not able to give out in in the form of financing 30-year money. They're having to match their financing terms with their own cost, with their own capital and their own uh, future capital needs. So uh, they're not able to do that. However, they do offer competitive shorter term financing. And, um, and that along with the other reason, which is banks are what we know. Um, many people do go to banks. 
certain other community banks can can be flexible um you know they take a common sense financing approach based on a client relationship and you know they get to know the the customer they they interact with them on a deposit relationship basis a business relationship basis they get to know them and when that person has an idea you know they they certainly look at their lending box but they'll also take a relationship into consideration so there are many reasons for a borrower to go to a bank um but like I said, there are also many reasons why a person can and should at the appropriate time go to a non-bank lender. I didn't even know this, and probably many of you don't know this unless you've been in this space and, and are well-versed in commercial financing. There are hundreds of hundreds, if not likely thousands of non-bank lenders out there. Many of them are sub affiliates of banks. Many of them are just institutional investor bank lenders, investor backed lenders for, excuse me. Um, and then there are just private lenders out there, people that have a wealth of money and they're, uh, they're trying to make wise use of that money and obtain a return on that money. And so they are private lenders and they'll either, um, they'll either affiliate themselves with a, a marketplace which um, which receives this investment, these investment funds, and then gives it out in the form of, of commercial financing, or in some other fashion, the private lender will find ways to lend their money up. Uh, I just think it's important to do your research and and understand that there are many avenues for obtaining commercial fan financing. Of course, I'm biased in saying that um, I, as a broker, will advocate for you. Like I said, I'll, I, as, as a broker, will advocate for you. And there are, there are many advantages for, for letting a broker um, uh, uh, help you find financing. But even if you don't want to use a broker and you want to spend the time, um, it will be a little bit of a shot in the dark unless you have done this many times. But if you want to just seek out the these non-bank lenders, you can find them online and it will I don't know that you will you will know that you have found the absolute best deal, but but there are certainly people that will see it as their um, MO to spend their time looking for lending programs. And if that's the way you'd like to do that, that's, that's great. Just, just understand there are, I'm trying to just raise awareness that there are non-bank lenders that offer a place in the market. Um, and so why would you go to, to these places? Here are a few advantages to non-bank lenders. They do tend to offer longer terms. It's quite common in the non-bank lender space, the alternative lending space, to uh, receive thirty-year fixed-rate um, money to have a to have a, a lock on your money for a longer term. In many cases, that in most cases, because real estate is just so competitive, and real estate financing is so competitive, um, the money is is quite competitive. The, the terms of the money. 
Non-bank lenders tend to have various programs to fit the needs of the market. There are full documentation programs, light documentation programs, non-documentation programs. So if you think about what you're used to in going to a bank, you're submitting the commercial enterprises tax returns. You tend to be submitting your personal tax returns. You're submitting financial statements. You're submitting bank statements. You're submitting documentation on... um, on uh, your down payment sources, proof of funds for the down payment, et cetera. Well, many lenders in the non-bank environment will require much of that. They don't. They tend to look at the deal as a standalone deal, meaning they're not really looking at your personal situation. They're not looking at your personal tax returns. They're looking at the real estate, and they want to understand the commercial nature of uh, the 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 commercial enterprise and um, and so they're just looking at the the tax returns of the of the enterprise, not the personal situation. But again, I go back to there are some lenders, some borrowers that aren't prepared to show tax returns at all. They don't want to show tax tax returns. They don't want to show personal financial statements or commercial financial statements. They don't want to show bank statements. So there are lenders out there that will offer lighter documentation mortgages or no documentation mortgages. You just have, those lenders essentially are making a decision based on credit score and, uh, and, you know, taking a, having a good understanding of the real estate. And based on that and the assertions of the borrower, they'll offer a set of terms. Now, they're probably not going to be the lowest set of terms as what you would get from a bank. Or if you uh, were able to document that you have, say, a 1.5 debt service coverage ratio with proof of that through historical financial statements, et cetera, the terms may not be equivalent to that situation, but they are um, pretty good terms for uh, for the risk involved. And there are many times when people just don't want to or can't show those things. Maybe they're trying to improve their situation and they need a financing now. And so the no documentation financing is the right scenario for them. Uh, many times lenders will do deals that banks won't do. Uh, unique property types. I think of hotels. Again, many banks are not doing hotels. There are lenders that will do hotels, RV parks, mobile homes, etc. Um, many, many lenders won't do gas stations, but there are other lenders out there that will do gas stations, just as an example. Uh, I talked about the documentation needed. Um, also, speed. Lenders tend to tend to um, offer a speedier process depending on the type of of mortgage or loan being offered. The other thing is the down payment sourcing. Um, You know, there are situations where you're borrowing from one place to obtain the down payment funds for another place. And um, most alternative lenders don't really care where that down payment is coming from because they're not doing a personal um, uh, debt service coverage ratio or a debt to income ratio. They're just wanting to understand the nature of the commercial enterprise, the, 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 the deal there. So those are a few things that um, 
are advantages for going to a uh, a non-bank lender. And I hope those make sense. I'm going to wrap it up now with this episode and just, again, hope I hope a few of these things uh, at least start a light bulb to flicker in your mind. Um, we do think it's a good time to be in real estate. It will build. Why do I do some real estate investing? It's a, just a good way to build wealth and making wise use of money um, as an alternative form of finance, uh, alternative form of uh revenue streams. It's tangible. Um, And again, there are many other reasons, but I hope this makes sense. And again, I'm going to also say, reach out to us if you have any questions, comments, things you'd like for us to talk about. I'd look forward to that. Thanks a lot for listening and uh, we'll talk next time. Bye-bye. This concludes the latest episode of CFO Squared Chats about financial and financing optimization with Carl Baker. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Leave us some notes or comments or questions by reaching out to us via email or phone number. Our contact information is in the show notes, and we would be glad to try to answer questions, take your notes, questions, and comments into consideration for future episodes. Until next time, signing off. Thanks again. Bye-bye.